It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back to Preachers on Preaching. This week, I speak with the Reverend Liz Goodman. Liz is the pastor of the Monterey United Church of Christ. That's not Monterey, California, but rather in the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts. The Monterey Church is a congregation of about 30 people in a town of about 900 people. And one of the things Liz and I explore is what it's like to be a preacher in that environment, particularly in a region of the country that Liz characterizes as post-Christian, or at least that's the dynamic unfolding in her town. Liz is a very careful and eloquent writer of sermons. In fact, she's just published a book of her sermons, and if you enjoy this conversation, I encourage you to take a look at this book. It's titled Breaking and Entering, Unexpected Sermons for an Unfinished World. You can find it at your local bookseller or perhaps right in front of you on the computer. Thanks again for listening, and if you would like to suggest any preachers for Preachers on Preaching, I would appreciate it greatly. That's how I found Liz. You can email me at preachers at christiancentury.org. For now, here she is, Liz Goodman. One of the reasons that I'm looking forward to this conversation is because you're preaching in a relatively rural context, and I found, for whatever reason, many of our guests are urban people. Um, but many more churches are not. So Liz, can you tell me a little bit about the context in which you preach? Yes. So Monterey is a small town of about a thousand year-round residents um, in a small county. Berkshire County, I think, has a um, population of 50,000. And it's in western Massachusetts. So we say we're midway between Boston and New York. We're actually a little closer to Boston. But we have a lot of New York Um, folks come as second homeowners, as weekenders, as um, vacationers. So on the one hand, Monterey is a very traditional New England, old-time, small town. On on the other hand, it's quite cosmopolitan. Um, There's a very, um, there's a, a, a lot of people coming and going. So as settled as the town is in some ways, it's also very transitory and very, um, like I said, cosmopolitan. So it's a it's a fascinating combination, and I and I feel like it's a great meeting place of two loves that I've got going on. I'm from New Hampshire. I'm from a rural place, and some of my best times were spent in the mountains of New Hampshire, working at a UCC summer camp. But I also have uh, a love of culture, and um, the things I have done in my free time tend to be um, choral singing and um, writing and sort of the life of the mind stuff. So. Um, it's really exciting to have found a congregation that really awakens both sides of me. Um, In a town of 900 year-round residents, what role or space does the church occupy in that community? Do you, do you feel like your congregation, your church, your building, your ministry um, is central to the town in a way that the church has been rendered, I don't know, marginal in a lot of places these days? I think it's becoming more central. Um, I feel like um, uh, Monterey went through a, and the Berkshires in general, um, went through a post-Christian phase earlier than a lot of places. Uh, the, the Berkshires is, part, is the ground for the Second Great Awakening. 
um, and they built churches <laughs> every 50 feet, it seems. So we have a lot of churches that are either empty or are very small. Um, and that's been the case for a long time because it's long been thought this was a place that was overbuilt as far as churches are concerned. So I actually feel like we're kind of um, coming out of um, a, a post-Christian mood. And I don't know if that's an historic trend or if that's just because I've been here for a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm closing out on my 15th year in Monterey, and I, and I feel like I, I, people trust that I'm not up to something, that I'm not trying to, you know, push an agenda, uh, that I, I really come in peace. <laughs> and what I does think that, that feel like? I mean, if New England, as one of the more secular parts of the country, is on the is sort of like trending toward European style secularization faster mm -hmm. than Indiana is, for instance. Um, perhaps now you're in your own community, if it's not broader and more historical, at least it's happening in Monterey, at least it's happening for you. What is it like to be in a post post Christian place? Like how does that play out over the course of your week? Um, that's a, that's a a tough question because it's so much about my my world that it's hard to see it sort of critically. Um, I it, when I first started, it, it it hurt to be quite honest because um, I was lonely um, and and I did feel like there other than the people in my church and the people who were close to the church for vague reasons more vague than just going to worship uh, on um, Sunday morning that that it it felt. Um, I felt sort of isolated. I felt like I was a, a slightly suspicious character. Um, I was w once at a party. I told somebody I was the pastor of the church. This was maybe 10 years ago now. And they said, well, that is very provocative. <laughs> and then like not a week later, I, I was talking to somebody else and they said, oh, that is so quaint. Do people go to church anymore? Um, and so I thought, huh, I'm both provocative and quaint. <laughs> now that's a feat. Um, uh, and I then I actually did take a long time off from even saying what I what I um, what I did. Mm. <laughs> um, Hard because, to hide that in in such it, a small town, though. It's true. And when my world, because uh, I live in Lenox, I live in a town other than Monterey, about it's about fourteen miles away. When my world in Lenox and my world in Monterey started to intersect more, um, and and I started to serve on more boards, and so people, I did have a more public presence. I was more also more comfortable just in my own skin as a pastor. So it no longer hurt my feelings um, when somebody would respond to me in a way that is totally other than how I perceive myself. And I think that's what's most painful for me, generally speaking, is when I understand myself in a certain way and I am received or responded to as if I am up to something wholly other than how I understand myself. Well, um, isn't that, I mean... Years ago, a, a parishioner of mine who's a psychiatrist sent me an email and he said, um, we were dealing with some conflict in the church, and, and the, the email started, Dear Matt, object of 10,000 projections. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I, I mean, we're always, I think, going to be living with that, where yeah. even with the people that we minister to and, and who, who trust us and love us yeah. and know us, it's I think it's an unavoidable part of this job. That It is. Right. And I actually think the more projections you are able to 
um, take on and sort of transform back um, in a more, it, it, I think the more you're able to manage that, the, the more you are also then inviting people to relate to God, because I think the experience of being with God is such a regressive experience um, that you, we, we are invited on a weekly basis to regress to our most primitive self, to our most infantile self. Um, it seems to me that's part of what being in God's presence is about. Um, and so if I am somebody who can, who in a, in a raw moment, if, if a parishioner has just had a frightening experience or a, 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 a grievous experience or a total, you know, joyful experience, something that's really emotionally deep, if they respond to me in a way that feels like, oh, they're, they need me to be their mother or they need me to be the bad guy or they need me to be something other than something, you know, outsized of what I actually am just as Liz Goodman, um, then there's, then that's, there's, that's an, a, a spirited experience, it seems to me. Um, and to be honest, I feel like that's a little bit of what's lost when we think of ministry as a profession. Um, and um, for me, I feel like I'm, it demands of me professional behavior, but also there's an intimacy that gets lost if that's all that we're doing, if we're only presenting a professional um, version of pastor. That's really interesting. Do you think you're married to a psychiatrist? That's right. Your husband's a psychotherapist. And I would imagine through conversation with him and, and knowing his work, you become, you have some facility with these kinds of ideas, right? Yes. Yes. One of the things that I experienced when I was younger in ministry um, was just a bewilderment at the reactions I was getting from people. Uh -huh. right. um, I, I just could not make sense of it. And I think like a lot of people who go into ministry, one of my primary aims and I didn't I wasn't fully aware of it when I was younger is to make people happy and make uh -huh. them like me um, <laughs> and that works you know but but the instances in which where I was finding you know those things I do that are appealing and pleasing or the things I'm good at in ministry were for some folks evoking a very hostile reaction right I felt like it well it has to be about me what am I doing wrong and certainly that's true sometimes mm -hmm. but it took me years to understand why just being in that role, looking like what I look like or whatever, is going to be provocative for some people, right? right. Um, and that can go the, the other way, too. I mean, people mm -hmm. can be telling you that you walk on water and you have to let go of that. But I wish that when I was in school, I had had some exposure to that set of ideas. I remember thinking, my God, why aren't divinity schools and seminaries introducing some of these psychological concepts that we're going to be neck deep in to aspiring pastors? Um, did you have that understanding before you went into ministry, or is that something you've kind of learned on the fly? Not at all. Oh, my goodness, not at all. Um, because I grew up going to the, the UCC church down the street from where I lived. I was from Northampton, New Hampshire, um, and the church was a respected gathering in town. The pastor was a, a, a warm, smart, is a warm, smart, faithful man. Um, the, it seemed like a kind place of intellectual rigor and also deep faith and strongly felt, um, you know, affection. And uh, it just was not a controversial thing at all in my life. I went there every Sunday for 18 years, went the way to college, came home, moved, lived at home for a while, went every Sunday for four. It was just so not a provocative thing. 
Um, and so then when I, when I felt called to ministry and went to divinity school, went to Harvard Divinity School, um, went through that, that was all fine, everything was fine. I did an internship at Old South, that felt very, like, of a piece. And then, then being out on my own, in, we moved out to the Berkshires, and being in the only church in town, the only ordained person in town, um, and and then in in New England, where the churches are sort of islands, and the larger culture is the what's dominant. It just it was such a surprise to be met with like as if I were up to something, as if I was I was being provocative by being a pastor. It was it was utter shock, and I was just remembering this morning with my son, who's now twelve. Um, going to a group relations conference because my husband is a psychodynamic psychotherapist. And so A.K. Rice group dynamic conferences were all the rage when he first arrived at Austin Rakes for the, the fellowship here. And so I went to one and I was just, I was beside myself at how, um, how when people are, are taken away from their context, taken away from their, their titles and their people of comfort and their places of comfort and just Act asked to act as themselves and to respond to whatever they see, however they see it. You know, you're sitting in a room with 40 people and people just start sounding off. And one person turned to me and said, you are so annoying. I see you sitting over there. I can't stand it. And she just went crazy. I thought, I'm a likable person. People like me. What's wrong with you? But it was so instructive because it made me realize I... I will evoke that in people, and people will evoke that in me, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Like, that's part of what it is to be in relationship with one another, that we can have these moments of sounding off of irrationality, of fear, and that then comes forgiveness, or first comes forgiveness. Forgiveness is the foundation of all of that, and it comes to play in very immediate ways when we really begin relating to one another, when we really begin being who we are with one another. As I think the church is, is a place... That invites that invites that and that needs that. Um, and that and if I understand you properly, the, in the sort of priestly role that we can occupy, we're in a channel where, when we are evoking that kind of projection, we can use it in order to orient the person who's that we're in relationship yeah. with toward God, right? Rather than just yeah. being reactive yeah. to it, um, which is. A, yeah, and, and that's a very important thing to remember. Um, and I, I forget that all the time. <laughs> yeah. So you've been at your church for 15 years. I want to read yeah. a portion from a sermon that you wrote. Um, this is a slightly long paragraph. Nearly 15 years I've been here in this tiny congregation, in this tiny town. Either I lack ambition or intelligence or faithfulness, and perhaps we all do, all 30 of us. But here's the thing. I think we're doing something here. I think something is happening here. Even while we sit together yet again for another Sunday morning, I think something happens when we pass the peace pieces called forth. I think something happens when we pray for the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth visits and speaks. I think we're doing something when we rejoice with those whom we know to be rejoicing and we weep with those whom we know to be grieving. Then you go on to say that your church has social justice aims and service projects that you're wrapped up in, but that even if those aren't successful, being in community, being in worship together is an act. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So there's several things I want to ask you about that beautiful paragraph. Um, the first is simply, what is it like to preach for that many years to a group of people whom you must know really, really well by now, like individually on mm-hmm. a, on a, on a intimate level? Um, right. What is that like? Oh, it's so wonderful. <laughs> um, I am, I love this church so much and, um, I, uh, it, I, I somehow don't feel constrained not to say things if I know that this is going to be, this is going to strike Mary's hearing one way, or I imagine that, um, that this is going to be, uh, this is going to resonate with Stephanie in a particular way. Or, I mean, I, I really do know the people that well, as you say, it doesn't constrict me. If anything, it feels like, um, uh, since, since the relationship has been so long and so steady, it feels like the hard things that I might say or that I might have said to me um, can be held because the, because the relationship will outlast whatever hard thing. And I'm not talking about a hard thing like some sort of social justice, um, prophetic speech kind of thing, but a small thing that I know that, like I know that when I say the word remembrance, as in do this in remembrance of me, I hear it in one way and that I know this one parishioner hears it in another way. Like that, that level of uh, speech where I understand how people understand words that I might understand differently and will you will continue to use anyway. Um, and so um, I, I just feel like the, the, the length and the steadiness of the relationship, that, that part of what we are, what is happening with us when we gather together, part of what's happening is that we are putting yet another layer of, um, of commitment um, on our relating and our relationships. And so I can say something that might upset or might challenge or might just fall flat and um, have it be held, um, which is so lacking in our culture. Um, uh, you know, I mean, all, we all know, we all know how relationship is so fleeting now, um, that to have long-standing ones that, that are deeply loving and deeply, sometimes deeply difficult and, and ultimately the most important thing there is, is such a gift. So in some Um, ways, what your community and what your ministry is modeling or reflecting is an act of faithfulness, right? Um, yeah. To each other, to the community, you, to your congregation. I've been thinking a lot yeah. lately about how, you know, we, America believes in God, right? But I mean, many of us believe in what Howard Wass calls the ultimate fakeness. Like something's out there. Hmm. Uh, but the Christian oh. God is a God of, 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 of this tenacious, fierce faithfulness. So, of course, is the, mm-hmm. is, is the God of Judaism. And if we don't believe in that God any longer, I think then mm-hmm. our culture's commitment to being a faithful people in all of the permutations of that word, right, is, is just by definition going to start to, to fail. Is, is we're even going to mm-hmm. start to question it as a value, um, you know, in, in marriages and in families and friendships in commitments to workplaces, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so to be in a community where it's not transitory, where mm-hmm. you've learned, right, 
each other's idiosyncrasies and how to trust one another and that this sort of deep level of we're here in it together, really no matter what mm-hmm. happens on this particular Sunday morning, um, mm-hmm. I can see how that would be rather than constricting, and I'm sure some people might assume it is, be freeing in the way that yeah. that fidelity is is liberating, right? Absolutely. And I'm so I'm so impressed that you used the word Fierce, because that's often a word that comes to my mind, which is a strange word to think um, of in the context of pastoral ministry. Maybe not so strange in thinking about God, although um, strange enough, because we do think of God as the moralistic deity or whatever the, the, um, that other phrase is, um, therapeutic moralism, moralistic deity, um, rather than something ferociously claiming us. Um, and I feel like I am an increasingly fierce person, even though I'm, uh, uh, well, I don't know necessarily that I present that way. I don't think other people would necessarily describe me that way, but, but my, the times when I feel I am truest, either as a pastor or as a parent, um, uh, or just as a, a, a person who deeply feels things, who has been described as intense, is when I am free to be fierce, which is something other than, it's not cruel or aggressive or violent or anything like that it's it's there's something else that there's a passion to that and a and a um a need in it um and desire um i feel like desire is a um is an important pastoral tool that we're often not um invited to make use of um but i like your your use of the word fierce because i think ferocity can really be a beautiful thing when it's done um in the in the context of deep relationship do you think that there is a way in which young preachers can fast track i mean most of the people i'm speaking with and and i feel this for myself i'm a better preacher now than i was 10 years ago um mm-hmm. And I wonder sometimes, would there have been a way for me to like fast track the wisdom that I've accrued in those 10 years? Um, no, I don't think so. Well, I think one of the things that happens when you're young is you need to prove yourself worthy. Um, and I mean, I couldn't have been in a more um, accepting congregation. So whatever I needed to prove was really, I brought to it. Um, but you know, I'm, you're 30 years old and you're standing in a pulpit. I mean, what? <laughs> What right do you have to be there? Um, and But, you know, there I was. And so I, I really wanted to make sure I was understood to be taking it seriously, that I, I didn't want to waste their time. I wanted to have something to tell them. I wanted to have something important to say so that they, you know, some of them had twice my age thought, okay, she's worth listening to. I'll come back again next week or, or, or whatever, however they might authorize me, um, continue to authorize me to speak to them and for them. And, um, I just don't know how you can be, uh, how you can honestly be a young person in a pulpit without feeling a little bit of, I need to prove myself. And if that's, if that's what you're feeling, that is both right, but it's also can be kind of a stumbling block because then you start pontificating rather than preaching. Do you feel like when when you were younger, were you reliant upon the writers and the theologians that you like in a more explicit way than you are now? Let me tell you, I um I remember going through a um a time, um maybe four years in, um where I 
decided I just, I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take my, um, my feeling of vulnerability of, of telling people what I think, how, what I think this might mean, what I've discerned for this morning. I just, it, it, it was really, I don't know what had happened, um, to, to cause me to feel this way, but I just felt like I couldn't do the vulnerability anymore. So that I, I began quoting people a lot <laughs> because I wanted to say, it's not me saying this, it's, you know, Barbara Brown Taylor or um, Walter Brueggemann or uh, uh, Niebuhr or Bart or, uh, because I, I just, I needed, I needed to be propped up. And I feel like that was a fine thing to sort of realize um, about myself. Um, and I, I don't, I don't feel um, bad about that or, or, but I'm glad to be beyond it. And I was, I, I, I do listen to your podcast and I was listening when Nadia Bolz Weber was speaking about, um, she said that she doesn't think she thinks it's, um, a weaker form of preaching. I can't remember her exact words and it was, she wasn't condemning at all, but that it's a weaker form of preaching to be quoting other people like this. If it doesn't come from you and your own faith and your own discernment, then, um, then it's, it's, it's kind of second class or what she said it graciously. But I, it made me think about that time when I really needed to rely on my elders because I, I, uh, I was tired and I was scared. Um, it's scary, you know. It's scary to stand up and say, I, I, I think this is what God means for us to hear this morning. Um, and if that doesn't frighten you every once in a while, I think maybe you're missing something. <laughs> That's such a, an audacious thing to say. Um, Absolutely. So I, I wonder, though, it, it's interesting, like, I've stopped quoting as much as I used to in the pulpit, and mm-hmm. and and I can't deti- I can't determine whether that's because I've internalized that, to, the, to such a degree the people who influenced me, um, or maybe I'm reading less. But at the same time, I've I found that I still find when I read theology that I love. This is me pushing back against the stuff from from Nadia that you just said. I hear what she's saying, um, mm-hmm. and in what you're saying, and I do think. Generally speaking, personal testimony is going to be more powerful in the pulpit than citing an outside expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if that out, Doug Paget in my conversation with him said the same thing. Like we rely upon, we think if the person is is older and more distant and credentialed somehow, they their voice has more authority. Mm-hmm. When in fact, he didn't say this, but I think what he was getting at is, if God is alive and active in your life and in mine and in the life of our congregation, why do we need to be turning to somebody who's been dead for 200 years um, or who has a higher profile if God is here with us right now? We can look to this. And I, I buy all of that, and yet when I read theology, I find things sometimes that are just so good that right. I feel like I have to share them. Like, just like hearing a great song, like, you got to hear this, you got to see this. Um, in fact, this week, the sermon I'm working on, I was reading a little Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Bonhoeffer has this little paragraph where he says, I'm going to read this. He says, God wants to console us. God only consoles us when there is reason for it, when humans don't know anymore, when the meaninglessness, when the meaninglessness of our life scares us. The world as it is in reality always scares us, but a person who is consoled sees and has more than the world. This person has life with God. 
So like there's a thousand ways to maybe to illustrate that idea. But what I find is I just want to lift that up and say, isn't this amazing? Like you bring your pain into the presence of God and it's not only relativized, but the things that are causing it are diminished. Like, and I can't get there on my own. I would never right. think of something that profound right. by myself. Right. And how wonderful it, a gift it is to give parishioners that they might have the words of Bonhoeffer in their heart and in their, their hearing. Um, because and I, I'm, I love pop culture. I love pop music. So we've all got Taylor Swift's <laughs> words in our hearing. And, and why not also have Bonhoeffer in the mix? So, yeah, if, if I, I think there is equal value in, um, in coming to a personal um, and communal present sense of God's reality and um, value in searching the wisdom of the ages, um, that it, it would be folly for me to think, well, that, you know, Bonhoeffer said it well, but I, I think I can probably do better. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or I'm experiencing grace too, therefore... Right. Um, You are a lifelong congregationalist, lifelong member of the UCC. Then you went to Harvard Divinity School. Mm -hmm. So I, as I've said, I'm also in the UCC. So when I beat up on our denomination, I do it from a place of the inside and of deep love. But my assumption would be a person with that background is going to definitely fall into the Unitarians considering Christ spectrum of our dimension, particularly because you're in New England. And you're not, your sermons are relative, again, to the UCC, orthodox, traditional, they follow the biblical narrative quite closely. Um, Where did that come from? How how were you not disabused of those things, or did you grow into them out of a reaction against liberal Protestantism, or like, what's your own theological unfolding been like? Um, that's what you point to was, was pointed out to me at my ecclesiastical council. Um, somebody said, I can't figure out if you're a cradle Christian or a born again Christian. (laughs) But it, it, that totally shocked me because it, it never occurred to me that I was anything other than a cradle Christian. Um, and, um, I, I don't know where it comes from as far as externals. Um, the church I grew up in was, he, Bill uh, McConnell, my pastor, is a um, was a lectionary preacher, stuck very close to the Bible. Um, I think I just never learned the Bible as a as a text that I had to understand in a certain way, so that I could take it on its own terms on any given on any given Sunday on any given day of reading it, um, and uh, what. I mean, I think I am slowly growing into it, but I never had, I never didn't, I, I think I also just started there, that that the truth of the story that the Bible tells and, and, and folds us into, that truth just continues to prove itself to me. Um, and with every cycle through the three-year cycle of the lectionary, I, I can't believe that it's still true. Um, I uh, and I can't really give you an example, um, and, um, and I love that when people said to Jesus, what are you about? He'd say, come and see, because, you know, like, I can't sum that up, so you're just going to have to, like, give your life over and follow, to me, follow me, because that's how it always feels. Like, I, I can't tell you right now what of it is, is true. I can just tell you that every time I go to that story that is told 
by the Holy Spirit and written down because people decided to give that a shot, writing down this eternal story. Um, it continues to prove true. Um, and I don't, I don't need, I, yeah, I, I, it just feels true to me. Um, I, That's really I, interesting. I mean, if, if I hear you properly, Liz, it's both something, your faith in its relative traditional shape uh-huh. is something that you've both always had or was inculcated in you as a kid in church. Yeah. Um, and yet also continues to take you by surprise. Right? Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> like only very recently did I think, I, I probably will have a sermon this Sunday again. For like probably 10 years, I'd be like, I don't know, we'll see if, <laughs> we'll see if I've got one this week. Um, and now I finally realized, no, I think I can count on this. I think I can count on the story somehow showing itself in a way that needs to be told. We need to hear this again. We need to revisit this again. Um, and, uh, do you think that, I mean, do you lament the, in, within liberal Protestantism and within the mainline and maybe particularly within the UCC, do you lament the, the lack of that kind of love for reliance upon the story? I do, but because I, I just think that it makes, um, life harder. It makes life harder in the church. Um, it, the church becomes something that we need to program or fix or save. Um, uh, and I just don't, that's not interesting to me. That is not an interesting starting point or paradigm for me to enter. I mean, you know, every Advent we're reminded this is supposed to be an adventure. Um, like we know how this is going to end because that's what our faith tells us. But let's see how it gets to that ending. Like let's, Let's do this again. Yeah. I just, I, I, I don't know why that's not more, uh, let, just more in the forefront of our thinking, because to me, that is the most fascinating thing, the most compelling, the de- most, the thing that I desire more, more than fine gold, um, that, that this might be a crazy, great, surprising, reliable ride. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. In one of your sermons, you have this sentence where you say, to know how a story ends is to make it more difficult to enter the story as it unfolds. You're huh. talking about the transfiguration story in, in that particular sermon. But it, it is, it does make it more difficult. But one of the things I hear you saying is, you know, let's jump on this ride again at Advent. We hmm. actually don't know how it's going to end because we don't necessarily know how it's going to impact us, right? How we're going to mm-hmm. react or live it out or be touched by it. Yeah, yeah, right, and or, or that's right. That the, the the surprise will still be there. That we know we know that this is good news. That this will that that this is good news for all. Um, this is a divine comedy, which means there's going to be a happy ending. Um, but as far as the how we will be folded into that, how I will live with that um, that commission, but also that um, that delight uh, is is um that's that's the the question that's always the question um you are a very careful writer i think you read like you are at least um your sermons are really well composed it's clear you're paying attention to sentences and to transitions and to word choice and they're 
remarkable as a result. I would commend our listeners to go to the Monterey website or to read your book and check some of these out. Um, what's your method like? Are you, does it, it's not like it feels painstaking, but clearly there's a lot of work going into your sermon writing. Uh, is that true? Yes. Um, the hardest part is um, to find the doorway in. I often feel like trying to find the first paragraph or sentence or word of the sermon is like searching in the dark for the doorknob, <laughs> for that door that will help you into the next room. Um, so once I feel like I have the first the starting place, um, then I can trust the going. Um, and once I'm going, um, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's easy. I wouldn't say that at all, but it's trustworthy. Um, it takes time and it takes presence of mind. Um, but it doesn't feel the way it used to feel, which was with a, with a, with over caution and almost defensiveness that I have to make sure I'm understood to be saying what I'm saying and understood not to be saying what I'm not saying. Um, it's an easy labor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like second kid, <laughs> not like my first, um, that there, that I, I, every once in a while I think, Oh, I'll knock this one out. Like this won't take time. I'll just, and then I'm reminded again. Nope. It's just, I have to sit. I have to be quiet. I have to turn off Facebook. I have to, um, I have to like concentrate and be present for this. And it takes, you know, eight, 10 hours really. Um, and I'm, I'm a 20 hour a week <laughs> pastor. So it's a huge part of my ministry. My, it's really is mine is principally a preaching ministry. Um, which I think would be true for anybody in Monterey because it is such a small town and there's not a whole lot of work other than leading worship to do. I, I'll have a funeral every once in a while, I'll have people I need to visit and I lead a lot of, weekly groups, um, like Bible study or whatever, but, um, but really it's a preaching ministry. So, um, my process is looking for the doorway in, and then once I'm in exploring the room with, with a, in, with presence of mind and concentration and time. Somebody said a writer is one for whom writing takes longer than other people. <laughs> yeah. Liz, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me and for sharing the perspective, and I think an unusual perspective of being, um, you know, a narrative preacher, diving deeply into the traditions of our faith in New England, in a small town. That's not, uh, that's not every pastor in the world. And so your perspective is really appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your work and I love this podcast. And I'll tell you, a small town uh, rural preaching would not be what it is without the internet and <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate. <laughs>